Thank you for checking out our sermon here at New Grace. We are excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. It is our prayer that it is a blessing to you. We just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the message. First, we would love to connect with you. You can find us on Facebook at New Grace BC. Also, be sure to check out our website, reachingroanoke.com. There, you can find out more about who we are and where we are going as a church. Again, thank you for checking out our sermon here at New Grace. Please let us know of any questions you may have or any way that we can help you and your family. Enjoy the message. So this morning we are uh, continuing our study on Advent, and we are on the third week of the Advent series. And during Advent, we, we take a little bit of time and we look at the true meaning of the holiday season. Uh, it's very easy to get distracted this time of year with traditions and obligations and gift giving and celebrations and all the stuff that we do. It's very easy to, to get distracted with what Christmas is truly about. And so during Advent, we, we pause a little bit uh, from all of that and we focus on the truth that Advent or Christmas, this time of year, it's really about two things. It's about the fact that Jesus came as a baby over 2,000 years ago to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect life, to die on the cross in our place, to be buried in a tomb, to rise again and redeem us to God the Father. And that all started on Christmas. And then we also celebrate the fact that Jesus, not only did he come, but he's coming again. That one day Jesus said as he ascended to God the Father, said he would come again and receive us unto himself. And so we, in this time of year, this time, of this, this time, we kind of stand between two truths. We celebrate the fact that Jesus did come, and we look forward to the time that he's coming back again. So Advent, it literally means arrival. And we thank God for his first arrival, and we thank God and look for his second coming. And this year, as we celebrate Advent, we're looking at the cast of Christmas. We're, we're looking at those biblical characters that make up the Christmas story that we know and love so well. And so the first week, we looked at the hope of the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, who oftentimes when you're talking about Christmas and you start going to the Old Testament, people don't understand that. But the Christmas story began way back in Genesis when God, after he had cast out Adam and Eve from the garden and cast judgment on them, he told them a promise that he would send a redeemer, that the son of woman would come and crush the heel of the serpent. And so that promise started in Genesis chapter 3 and it continued all through the, the Old Testament, through the, the signs of the temple and the tabernacle and, and everything that was done and the sacrifices and the law and all these things that were done were a symbol of the coming Messiah, the coming promise of God. And so we look to the hope that the prophets had as they longed for and looked for the coming Messiah and that hope that we have that Jesus is coming again. And last week we looked at the peace that the angels proclaimed when Jesus was born. Remember when they came to the shepherds, they said, peace on earth and goodwill to men. They, were, they weren't declaiming that there was going to be no more war that there would be no more strife, no more fighting. They were saying that because Jesus came, peace between God and man was available. And this morning, we're going to look at the shepherds, and we're going to see the joy that they experienced and that is available to us through the coming Christ. You know, every year during Christmas time, parents, they go to sometimes extreme lengths 
to get their kids the special present that they want, the most popular thing each year. If you grew up in the 90s, you may remember the Tickle Me Elmo dolls. How many of y'all remember the Tickle Me Elmo dolls? How many of y'all had a Tickle Me Elmo doll? John raised his hand. All right. A little concern there, John. But who else had a, anybody else buy their kids a Tickle Me Elmo doll? All right, we got a couple of them. Now, during the Tickle Me Elmo time, parents would get in line sometimes for hours to wait to buy this, this little doll that tickled, that, you know, giggled when you squeezed his tummy. Uh, and there were, there were news reports about riots because stores would run out of Tickle Me Elmo's and you'd see moms and grandmas just duking it out to get that last present. Eventually, when they were all gone, people ended up paying thousands of dollars to get this Tickle Me Elmo doll for their toddler. Uh, if you had a daughter going up in the 2000s, you may remember the scramble to get a Bratz doll where the same thing happened, there was limited supply, and so parents would have to wait in line for hours or fight to get the right Bratz doll or pay three times what they were worth just to get the right Bratz doll for your little brat, apparently. <laughs> uh, if, you had a, if you were growing up in the, uh, maybe again, any of the two, th- uh, what is, okay, most recently the scramble has been for Zuzu Pets. Uh, once again, people paying three times what they're worth just to get the right Zuzu pet for their kid. In the 70s, the big craze was pet rocks. Who had a, anybody have a pet rock? Whoever, okay, got a couple pet rock fanatics. Now, whoever, the guy who invented the pet rock is a genius because he convinced kids to get their parents to buy them a rock that would come in a box with holes poked in it so the rock could breathe and instructions on how to take care of your rock. And people paid for this. Instead of saying, I want a pet rock, good, go out in the yard, there's plenty out there. Get, get you ever, however many pets you want, take them. But they would pay to have a rock shipped to their house to be their pet. So what's it going to be this year? What's the, the big thing people are going to fight over this year, desperately hoping to, to, to get for their kids, and just millions of parents are just trying to get their, to- their kid that perfect toy, the toy that will light up their face on Christmas morning and hopefully not be forgotten by New Year's, because that's usually what happens. You spend time, you spend money, you go to the mall, and you duke it out with some other woman just to get your kid that perfect present, and they open it up, and they're so excited, oh, this is so great, and this is so awesome, and then two days later, they forgot about it, they broke it, they lost it, or they're playing with a box instead of the toy. And so you know your kids are going to love it, and so you think if they love it, then in turn they're going to love you, and you know it's going to be the best thing it's going to receive, but eventually they stop caring about it and they move on to the next toy that they want. And the gifts that we spend time, the gifts that we spend money on for Christmas to give to our loved ones they don't bring the lasting joy that we hoped they would. Now, the first Christmas was a lot different than that. So look in your Bibles in Luke chapter 2. We're going to start reading in verse number 8. Luke 2, starting in verse number 8. The Bible says, And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. 
And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I will bring you good tidings of great joy that shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And ye shall, this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there were with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in the manger. And when they had seen it, and when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. So, as we enter the third week of Advent, we're going to look at the joy that the coming Savior brought to the angels and also the joy that the, that the coming Savior brings for us. Number one, let's look at the foundation of our joy, the foundation of our joy. Now, the problem with toys and, and most things that we look for joy in is that they offer diminishing returns. Now, in economics... The law of diminishing returns says that in, as an investment increases, at a certain point, the rate of profit stops and it begins to not be as valuable as it once was. And so with, with toys and electronics and stuff that we look to for joy, we find that the more we go back to that thing and the more that we think on that thing, the less joy that it brings. And this isn't just true for stuff, this is true for uh, experiences. Even once-in-a-lifetime experiences don't bring the lasting joy we hope they would. You know, the day after Thanksgiving, I had the privilege to be in Charlottesville and watch UVA beat Virginia Tech and win the Commonwealth Cup. It was a wonderful, glorious day. It was incredible to be there with all those UVA fans and celebrating and screaming and just love was going to go down on the field and to celebrate. I got to hug a couple players, say which ones I don't know and I don't care. They were there. I got to see Bryce Perkins. I got to see Coach uh, Mendenhall, and it was just a wonderful experience. I got to be there with Parker, and man, it was just so much fun. And I came home on cloud nine. I was ecstatic. The next day, I was just jumping for joy, and I felt so great. But every day that joy is going down a little bit. It's not as exciting as it once was. Now it's still exciting. Just like winning the national championship last year is still exciting. Just like next week when UVA is going to win the national championship in soccer. Amen. Go Hoos. That's like 29 national championships for us. Anyway, that's another tangent. Those are exciting. But after a while it kind of, kind of fades. You know, several years ago I got to go to the UVA game and be on the sideline when they played Miami. And there's a, you can see on ESPN, there's a, a diving one-handed catch that one of the UVA receivers makes in the end zone. And I'm on ESPN right there jumping for joy. That was a great time, but it's just, it fades after a while. Sure, it's great at first, and I always remember those experiences and think, man, that was, that was fun. That was great to be there. But eventually the joy fades. When we're given an amazing gift, it it only brings joy for so long. 
eventually it just come, becomes part of the stuff that we have. But that first Christmas gift was completely different. The shepherds show us that encountering Jesus brings lasting joy. This, this encounter, this experience had such an impact on the shepherds that they had to spread the word to everyone they met and everyone they knew that they had met the Messiah. This was a lasting joy that they could not contain. You know, three decades later, Jesus gave insight on this joy in our lives. He said in John 15, 11, he says, These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. How many of us, honestly today, can look at our life and say, My joy is full. My joy is full up. I've got all the joy I could possibly want. You know, there are over 155 verses in the Bible that deal with joy. And if you studied them, if you read them, you're going to find out a powerful truth. God, in every one of those 155 verses, he does not encourage us to have joy. He does not offer us joy. He commands us to have joy. In fact, the Bible commands us to have joy twice as much as it commands us to repent. God expects his children to have joy. God wants our lives filled with joy, marked with joy, and overflowing with joy. Does that honestly describe our life? Does it honestly describe how we, how we feel? The shepherd's joy, we've got to understand, the shepherd's joy wasn't from anything they had done or anything they possessed. Their joy came from meeting Jesus. Their joy wasn't because they had a great holiday. Their joy wasn't because they got the greatest present. Their joy was because of they had met God. They were just watching sheep, doing their job, and living their life. And look, I'm sure the shepherds had some happiness in their lives. You know, shepherd and being a shepherd was a hard job to have. You were considered unclean by the Jewish community, so most of the religious leaders wouldn't have anything to do with you. You had to sleep in the field at night with, with sheep. You had to work hard days. It was, a, it was a hard job, but I'm sure they had some happiness. I'm sure some of them were married, had some kids. They, they had some, some happiness in their lives, but that all changed when they first heard of Jesus. When they heard about Jesus, they received life-changing joy. And their joy grew as they met Jesus. Joy begins in our lives the same way as it did the shepherds. It begins when we meet Jesus at salvation. And it grows as we, as we get to know him and spend time with him and fellowship with him. Without that foundation, without the foundation of salvation and meeting Jesus Christ, we will never have true joy. Nothing lasts forever except an encounter with Christ. That encounter lasts and grows through all eternity. Meeting Jesus never stops impacting, shaping, and transforming our lives. It never stops giving us joy. That is the only foundation that will last. That is the only foundation that brings true, lasting joy. So you see the foundation of our joy. Secondly, <coughs> let's see how we are supposed to embrace the joy. Embracing the joy. The joy that only comes through relationship with Jesus 
It has to be embraced on a daily basis. Why? Because life tries to steal our joy. The enemy tries to steal our joy. Circumstances steal our joy. Obstacles steal our joy. Duties steal our joy. How many of y'all got to go to work tomorrow morning? You got joy about that? It's a duty. Got to do it. But it steals your joy. And especially this time of year can steal our joy. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Now, does he say rejoice in the Lord when you feel like it? Rejoice in the Lord when you got the day off? Rejoice in the Lord when everybody's happy? Rejoice in the Lord when everything's going your way? No, he says rejoice in the Lord always. And then he, he continues, and again I say rejoice. And he says let your moderation or your gentleness be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. See, one part of embracing joy is choosing to rejoice in everything. And that's where most of us get tripped up. We rejoice in the good things. We rejoice in the blessings. We rejoice in the, the, glory, the things that happen to us that we enjoy. But the sicknesses, the, the layoffs, the heartaches, we don't rejoice in those. But we have to choose to rejoice in everything. See, when you study the, the, the joy in the Bible, you'll notice that every time God talks about having joy or every time someone expresses having joy, it is never connected to circumstances. It is always connected to a decision. Someone who is going through a hard time chooses to rejoice even though they're having a hard time. The key to choosing joy is to rejoice even when the circumstances are disappointing and painful. One example is Habakkuk. The prophet Habakkuk in his time, Israel, was in a very dark time. There was, the land was in a disarray. Wickedness and idolatry were, were common during that time. The Assyrians were, were threatening to invade. There's famine in the land. There's, there's pestilence in the land. The circumstances that Israel was facing, the circumstances that Habakkuk were facing are bad. Very bad. But look at his prayer in Habakkuk chapter 3. He says, although the fig tree shall not blossom. Now look. If the fig tree doesn't blossom, what do you not have come spring, come summertime? Figs. So if the springtime don't, the spring tree don't blossom, we ain't got no figs. If the fig tree should not blossom, neither fruit be in the vines. Again, no, no food. The labor of the olive tree shall fail. The fields shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold. There shall be no herd in the stalls. So Habakkuk saying, look, God, if, if everything fails, if we ain't got no figs, we ain't got no fruit, we ain't got no olives, we ain't got no olive oil, we ain't got no meat to eat, we ain't got no food to eat. Lord, if there's not even babies being born to the cattle, if this is the, the, as bad as it can get, he says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The situation in Israel could not have been worse. And Habakkuk's response was to rejoice, was to be joyful. Wasn't his circumstance that made him happy. He made a conscious decision. God, it is terrible, and if it gets worse, I'm still going to rejoice in you. See, what happens to most of us is good things happen, 
We, we get happy, we feel joy, and then we rejoice. Our joy is determined on our circumstances. The Bible tells us it's supposed to be different. We are to rejoice no matter the circumstances we're facing. And because we choose to rejoice no matter what we're going through, then we feel joy. And like the shepherds, no matter how bad your your life may seem to be, how dark your circumstances may be, we have a reason to rejoice. Christ has come and he said he's coming again. That's our reason to rejoice. So what does choosing to rejoice, choosing to joy look like lived out in our everyday lives? Well, here's one example. How many of you like feeling embarrassed? None of us. You do something stupid, you, you hate that. We do something that, that people look at, it's like, why, why would you do that? Why would you say that? And look, I have, I have done some things and I have said some things. That as soon as I said them, I thought, man, I wish I could have a 10-second rewind and just not say that. Anybody ever done that? You wish you could say, just go back and say, mm, let's, let's redo that and not say what I just said. Normally, it involves April when we're fighting, and I say, calm down. You know, telling a woman who's upset to calm down has never one time calmed her down? Never in the history of the world has it worked. So don't say it, guys. Just say, you're right, sweetheart. Whatever it is. And there you go. And so, you're right, sweetheart. Go buy you something pretty. And that helps. And so, you know, we've all said things and done things. And usually when we're embarrassed, when we, we mess up, we do something stupid, when that happens... We try to push it away. We try to get away from it, try to forget it. We do whatever we can to not feel embarrassed. Instead of doing that, next time you do something dumb, because you're, you're going to, we all, I'm not going to do anything dumb. Yeah, you are. We're all going to do something stupid again. Next time you do something dumb, instead of being embarrassed and trying to hide from it, rejoice in it. So why would I, why would I rejoice in that? Because you can rejoice and thank God that when you feel foolish, it's an opportunity for your ego to be put in check. It's an opportunity for you to be humbled. And being humbled is a wonderful thing. God hates the proud. And so when we feel embarrassed, we can say, well, Lord, thank you for reminding me that I'm I'm, I'm not all I think I am. It's also an opportunity to learn from your mistakes. You know, whenever our kids do something dumb, if it's they hurt themselves or mess, whatever they do, you know, they'll, they'll hurt themselves doing something. I'll be like, did you learn anything? No. Well, that's dumb. But if they didn't learn anything, yeah, learn not to do that. Well, there you go. You can be thankful that, yes, you did something stupid, but you learned from it. So next time you do something embarrassing and you're like, man, I hate that I did that, say, God, thank you for humbling me a little bit. Thank you for showing me that I... I need a little more than I think I need. Thank you, Lord, for, for helping me to understand I need for you and to teaching me an example. Here's another one. You get, you get really sick. You face a situation where you cannot do anything to help yourself. How could we rejoice in that? Because that's an opportunity for you to trust in God completely. That's an opportunity for you to see God come through and work in an incredible way that you never would have seen if you hadn't had that difficult time. So we can rejoice in everything that we go to, we go through. We don't have to enjoy them or like them or even welcome them. But we can rejoice when the failures come. Third thing let's look at, 
is our joy that lasts. Now, this joy that we have in Jesus is a joy that can never and will never be taken away. Now, most of us here, we know Romans 8.28. For we know that all things work together for good to them who love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. When you look at that word, that sentence in the Greek, the Greek word for all things is the Greek word pas. And it means each thing individually and collectively. So here's, here's a Greek lesson for you. All things means all things. When Paul said, all things work together for your good, he meant all things work together for your good. He didn't, he didn't say the good things or some things or, or most things. He said, all things work together for your good. So, no matter what you go through, you can be certain of two things. Either God sent it, or God's going to use it for your good. No matter what you're facing, things happen that are sent, to God, that are sent by God that we don't like, but they're sent for our good. Things happen that God didn't send, but he allowed, and he allowed them because he's going to use them for our good. The painful thing you're going through right now is going to be used by God for your good. Somehow, someday, in some way, it'll be for your good. You may not see it right now, but we can trust that it is for our good. See, that means God is mindful of you. God is watching over you. And in that truth, we can always have joy. Because of that truth that we know God is watching us and God is involved in our lives and everything we go through, the good, the bad, the ugly, no matter what it is or how bad it hurts, God is going to use it for our good. With that truth, we can always have joy. You know, when Israel was led out of bondage, led out of Egypt into freedom, they had two sins that they were constantly struggling with. One was the sin of idolatry and the other was the sin of complaining. Their complaining made God mad. Their complaining made God so mad that one time he threatened to wipe them all out and just start over with Moses. Their complaining made him mad again, so mad again that he said they asked for meat because all they got were, were vegetables. They were living a vegan diet, and let's be honest, that's terrible. But they were complaining about it, and so God sent them quail. And they thought, oh, great, quail. God sent them quail up to their necks, and whoever ate it was, died. God said, you want meat? Here's your meat. God hates complaining. God hates complaining so much because it means that we feel he hasn't provided enough for us. We feel he hasn't done enough for us. And here's the truth we need to understand. Everything you have is everything you need. You may not have as much as someone else, but you don't need it. God has given you Everything you need. And so we complain. We're telling God what you've given us isn't good enough. How many of you parents, when your kids, you spend money and time getting a present, they open up that present and they look at it like, this isn't what I wanted. I wanted the blue one. How many of you just want to make them eat that toy? We're like, how dare you complain about what I got for you? That's how God feels. 
God, I don't have this, I don't have this, and I wish I had... God's like, how dare you complain about what I've provided for you? Now look, we are supposed to share our burdens with each other. We're supposed to be honest and open with each other about our pains and our struggles. But complaining about your boss, complaining about your wife, complaining about your job, complaining about your finances, complaining about your kids, complaining about your friends... Complaining about your circumstances, that's a sin. And God hates complaining. It dishonors God and it's divisive. Just like rejoicing restores your joy, complaining steals your joy. Complaining never helps, it always hurts. So if you complain a lot, you need to, you need to stop it. And you need to rejoice in what you complain about. Complain about your boss? How about rejoice you have a job? There's people that don't. Complain about your house? How about rejoicing you have one? Because I can take you downtown tonight and show you a bunch of people that don't have one. Complain about your spouse? How about you go meet some widows and widowers who, who wish they had their spouse with them this Christmas? Stop complaining and start rejoicing about what you have. Complaining wages war on your joy. And the fourth thing we're going to look at is number four, joy... That is complete. There's another theme connected to our continued and growing joy that's found throughout the Bible. And it's most clearly seen in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a beautiful psalm of David written after his sin with Bathsheba. Now, we know the story. David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. He'd gotten her pregnant. And he tried to cover it up by having her husband Uriah come and and come back from battle and stay with his wife. And he figured, well, if Uriah comes home, he's been at battlefield. He's going to come home. He's obviously going to spend the night with his wife. And so when the kid's born, he thinks it's his kid. So it all's covered. All's good. But Uriah's an honorable man and won't do that. And so David, to cover up his sin, he has Uriah killed in battle. And then he marries Bathsheba when the baby's born. It's like, oh, I guess it was a preemie, 12-pound, 8-ounce preemie, sure baby or whatever. But so he thinks he got away with it. He thinks his sin is covered. Everything seemed to be going well until the prophet Nathan came and confronted him. And Nathan told him, even though you think your sin is covered and forgotten, God has seen it. And God has not forgotten about it. And he says, because of your sin, the child born in adultery is going to die. And because of your sin, the sword will never leave your house. Your family will be plagued with trouble. And so Psalm 51 is David's song of confession, his song of repentance before God. He is pouring out his heart to God over his sin. And in verse 3 he says this, he goes, For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak, and you are blameless when you judge. And so David confesses his sin before God. He asks God to clean him up, to purge him, so he doesn't commit this sin again. And then in verse 12, David says this. He says, Restore to me the joy of of your salvation. David brings his life back into alignment with God's truth, and God's word through confession and repentance. Our sin will always bring us pleasure. You know, I've heard preachers say, sin ain't fun. They're not doing it right. If sin wasn't fun, we wouldn't do it. 
No one, you know, paying taxes isn't fun, but we got to do it anyway. You know, if sin was, was going like paying your taxes, no one would ever sin. Sin would not be an issue. You know why sin's a problem? Because it's fun for a while, for time. It may bring us some momentary happiness, but in the end, it always brings pain and it will steal your joy. David also said in Psalm 19, he said, The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. You want your, your heart to rejoice? You want your eyes to light up with unspeakable joy? David says, then do, thing God, do things God's way. Find joy that is complete in God and walking with him and fellowshipping with him and not the things of the world. C.S. Lewis said this, He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud piles in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We are too easily forget what it means that the Savior has been born to us. We easily forget what salvation actually means for us. If eternal life was merely spending eternity in heaven with Jesus, that would be enough to rejoice in any situation. Because we could say, yeah, it's hard now, yeah, it's painful now, but you know what? When I'm dead, I get to be with heaven and Jesus, with Jesus forever. And that would be a, enough to rejoice in. But that's not all eternal life is. Eternal life isn't just going to heaven when you die. That isn't the only thing that Jesus gave us that first Christmas. Salvation includes heaven, but it's much more set more than that. Salvation means we are a child of God. Salvation means that we are at peace with the Father. It means that we are reconciled through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It means that we have a relationship with the Creator. We are in fellowship with our Heavenly Father that loves us. It means that God is always watching us, and God is always involved in our lives, and God is always working in every situation for our good. It means that we are always welcome in the presence of God. And we always have the Spirit of God living in us, guiding us. It means we have His help. It means we have His comfort. It means we have His provision. It means we have His joy. Joy is stolen when we forget what Jesus' birth means in our lives. So we search for joy by making mud pies in the slum of what this world offers and instead of seeking a holiday by the sea. True, lasting joy comes from meeting and walking with Jesus. It comes from loving Jesus above everything else. Look, life can be hard, but we know the secrets the shepherd have. The Lord has come. The Savior of come, and in him we have salvation, we have redemption, we have reconciliation, and in him... We have joy. And no matter what happens, that joy can never be taken away. Remember what Jesus said? He goes, if the sun sets you free, you shall be free indeed. So let's live like we're free. Let's live like we're saved. Let's live 
with rejoicing. Every moment is a chance to praise God for what he is doing in our lives, even if it hurts us at the moment. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I say rejoice.